welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Hey, welcome to Church at the Well. So good to be with you today. We are in a series that we actually have been in for several weeks now calling Breakthrough, which is about the fact that at times, whether in relationships or in a season of life or in a particular thought pattern or behavior or just in our mind, we feel stuck. We feel like we can't move forward. We feel like we keep cycling around to the same issues, the same fights or the same um, behaviors or thought patterns. Or we feel like we're trying to move forward and we're being pushed backwards. That not, that's not stuck. That's being hindered. And we said, man, what would it look like to get breakthrough so we could live with true freedom? Now, today is actually our final sort of deep dive into this series. And the next week, we're going to uh, take what we call a, a pause or a sila, just to pause and say, where have we been? And let some of these things, these truths kind of seep into our lives so that we can actually change, so we can actually get freedom. But today, it's our final one. And just like um, the later versions of Star Wars were not as good as the earlier ones, just like Rocky VI cannot hold a candle to Rocky III, just like Weekend at Bernie's 2 is nowhere near as epic as Weekend at Bernie's. I'm just kidding. They were both amazing. No, uh, you might be tempted. Look at it. And I actually feel a little bit tempted in this, for this last one to go, oh, yeah, no, that's not really an issue for me. Or that's probably not the reason or the main reason or any reason at all that I feel stuck or hindered. You'd be, you'd be very tempted to, to discount it. So let me just get it on the table first and then talk about why we might think, ah, this isn't really important. And then I'm going to take a bunch of time to tell us why I really think it is. You might be feeling stuck in a behavior, in a thought pattern, in a relationship, not able to move forward, not able to get ground to become the person you want to be or to move forward in that area of life or in, that, in this season of life. You may feel like it's one step forward and two steps back because of, wait for it, fear, fear. <laughs> to which many of us, myself included, would go, oh, yeah, no, that's, that's not really a problem for me. Here's partly why we say that. As men and women, and actually from the time we were young boys and young girls, we have been trained and conditioned to not admit or spot or identify fear in our lives. As boys or as men, we're told, no, don't be afraid. Don't be a wimp. Like, be courageous. Be bold. Um, don't be weak. You have to, in the face of things that might uh, cause you to be afraid, you need to stand up. You need to be a man. You can be strong. You can overcome that. Don't admit to that. Um, that's just, there was this old deodorant commercial back in the day where it says, never let them see you sweat. You know, like, don't admit to that. You can push through that. And, and, and as, from the time we're young boys and still maybe as men, that message is, no, you can overcome it. You can push past it. Don't be a wimp. Don't be a coward. Don't give in to fear. But it's not just for men, from uh, young girls and women. Also now we're saying, hey, like you, you're equal. We're equal. You can't, don't admit to fear. That's just going to prove you're the weaker sex. And you have to show you don't need to depend on somebody else. You don't need to give in to weakness. You're just as strong as men are. So stand up, be bold. Don't admit to fear. Don't give in to fear. Don't show weakness. So whether you're a boy or a girl, a man or a woman, we've been many ways conditioned and the messaging around us is don't name fear. Don't give in to fear. Don't even think about it just push past it. 
um, we're also, in a sense, maybe uh, just kind of all of us in that uh, place where we don't like to admit to feeling vulnerable or weak. In fact, our survival instinct, even physiologically, but also mentally, rejects the feelings of weakness and vulnerability. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want to feel weak. Who likes that? Nobody. And then even more complicated, I think, for people of faith, we say, well, if you're a person of faith, there's no room for fear, right? Faith over fear. Like, we don't need to be afraid. And somehow, if you're afraid, that means you doubt. And if you doubt, that means you're not a true believer. So there's no room for fear in your life. And so in many ways, what that causes us to do is just say, no, I don't have it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to admit to it. I just reject it. Or I can't even see it at work. So at the very least, we have to realize, man, there's lots of things working against us in this one to say, nah, it's not there. It's not a thing. And so maybe we just have to pause and say, well, maybe it is. But even more so, man, we have to know because living in fear is no way to live. I remember a number of years ago, I'm um, going on a canoe trip in the interior of Algonquin, and there were six of us that had gone. We had taken two canoes. We found this incredible spot. It was this kind of wide, open, flat rock, and then all kind of surrounding it was sort of soft, like ground for our tents and everything, but the rock area was where we could kind of sunbathe, where we could cook our meals, hang out during the day or whatever. So we decided, hey, once we got in the settle the next morning, we said, let's go paddle over to some cliffs and we'll do some cliff jumping. So they're all going to go, and I think, oh, okay, I'm going to go to the washroom first. So I go back into the deep woods, whatever. And I come out, and as I get to this kind of rock area, I see the group I was with, my friends, all five of them are crammed into one canoe right in the edge of the water, and they are staring right at me. In fact, I realize they are staring just past me because just behind me, and I slowly turn around, and I see a bear maybe 20 feet from me. So I slowly walk towards the canoe. We get in and we scram. We're paddling away, paddling away. We pull out the binoculars. We went to a rock nearby and we're watching our campsite, watching this bear. What's he doing? And he was kind of pawing around on our stuff. Fortunately, we had hung our food up in a tree. So after like several hours of doing that, we came back and, you know, the rest of the weekend, we would like make lots of noise, bang pots and pans. When we go back in the woods, especially at night to go to the washroom, we would sometimes take an ax and hit the tree and say, I'm coming, bear, I'm using the washroom, all this stuff. Like this was our camping trip for that weekend, which is kind of funny when you think about camping. Oh, what'd you do on your camping trip? Well, I paddled a few yards away from my site and I watched it forever with binoculars. And then I banged a lot of pots and pans throughout the weekend and I would shout into the darkness when I walked into the bathroom. Uh, we walked into the woods for the bathroom every night. Like, it's funny when you think about camping, it's no way to live when you think about life. Like they actually say when you meet a bear, or when you encounter something that you should be afraid of, your body actually starts to shut down its essential, uh, all non-essential functions and activities, both brain pattern and body patterns and, and physiologically so that you can make really quick decisions, so that you can run really fast, so that you can lift something really heavy that you normally wouldn't be able to do. It shuts down the rest of your body and it goes into, you know, that whole fight or flight thing, which is really important when you have an encounter of fear and you need to deal with something in the moment. But, but psychologists and um, medical professionals tell us you can't live that way. If your body is constantly in a state of fear, you are going to be wrecking your mind and your body and your adrenal glands and all of that stuff. And just like it would be comical to say every time you went camping, all we did was paddle offshore and look at the, look at the, the, the campsite to make sure nothing was happening and banging pots and pans and yelling every time we went to the bathroom. It'd be no way to camp. It's also no way to live. So we have to figure out, man, I don't want to admit to this. It's not easy to see, but the effects could be really bad. So I need to know, is fear operating in my life?
Now, even more unexpected than the idea of whether fear is operating in my life is actually the solution to what it means to not live in fear. And we're going to get there, but I'm going to take a little while. It's going to be a little while before we get to scripture. So those of you that really love the Bible verses, just be patient. We're going to get there. But we got to deal with this first and actually say, is this actually in my life? And what would it look like since it's not easy for me to spot? Now, one of the interesting things you'll find about the scriptures is, someone said, there's reading this in the book the other day. Someone said that the most oft-repeated command in scripture is fear not, or do not be afraid. Now, I haven't done my own research, so maybe that's not totally true, but I know it's mentioned many, many times. Fear not, do not be afraid. So at the very least, and these are, this is a collection of books that were written a few thousand years ago, um, it's not new, this problem of fear. But I do think it's worse because, here's why, we in the present age live in what is called the information age or a knowledge-based economy, a knowledge-based society, which means this. We know so much. We know so many things about the human body. We know so many things about money and investing. We know so many things about sort of uh, physical, mental, emotional health and growth for our kids and for ourselves. We know so many things about education. We know so many things about science and nature. We know so many things about relationships. There's so much information. There's an, uh, an exponential amount of information out there in the information age in a knowledge-based economy. And we know so much, which is wonderful. Learning is incredible. The problem is we also know way more things that we should be and could be and need to be afraid of. We're afraid of dying. We're afraid of getting sick. We're afraid of war or the effects of war. We're afraid of viruses and we're afraid of vaccines. We're afraid of missing out on opportunities for our children. We're afraid of something going wrong with our health. We're afraid of not investing early enough in the stock market or investing too much in the stock market or investing in the wrong things in the stock market. We're worried about whether we're gonna get good enough grades. We're worried about whether we're gonna get into the right school or if I got into the right school and I picked the wrong program. We're worried about whether I'm gonna get a job or get a new job or get the job that I lost back. We're worried about so many things. Fear, we, we not only know more, we fear more. We know more, which is a wonderful thing, and yet we are more aware of all the things there are to be afraid of. And so this is actually something that can be and is operating in our lives that, that is, has come with being a part of the information age of a knowledge-based society. But again, our biggest problem with fear is that we don't even recognize it. In another way, I can say this, fear actually wears masks. <laughs> um, it's not easy to see. Like here's the thing. We think that fear looks like this. Like this is the classic kind of picture of fear, right? I'm just afraid, cover my eyes or whatever. We think fear looks like that. But fear actually wears masks. It's not easy to see because it most often in our lives doesn't look exactly like that's easy to see and it's easy to see in a younger child or whatever. But fear has different masks it wears <laughs> that underneath is fear, but up front, it looks like this, like anger. Like we're angry. Anger is a much safer emotion to express than fear, right? Fear, we fear, if we, if we acknowledge fear, that feels like vulnerable and weak, but anger is strong and powerful and not vulnerable at all. So it's much easier to lash out in anger or to be angry at the world or express feelings of fear that actually come out like anger because it feels safer. But not just anger. Fear can look like take charge, take control. Instead of feeling 
fear, we're going to take control. We're going to make sure that things don't happen. We're going to get in the driver's seat. We're going to seize this situation. We're going to try to control the outcome or control this person who's bothering us or who's threatening us. We're going to take charge, not just anger, but control and take charge. It also could look like the other side of control, which is worry. Worry is the mind's um, instinctive attempt to control something by thinking about it over and over and over. Why do we worry? Why do we turn something over in our mind over and over and over again? Why? We're trying to control it. We're trying to master it. We're trying to keep it from swallowing us up. And yet it does because it's worry. It doesn't look like fear. It looks like worry. How about this? Compulsive escape, right? We can't deal with the stuff that is threatening to make us feel afraid, to make us feel vulnerable, to make us feel weak. So we just stream it away or we try to work it out away or we try to drink it away or we just try to, you know, take vacations and actually get away so we can somehow escape from the things that if we think about long enough would threaten us with a kind of paralyzing fear. And so it doesn't look like fear. It looks like compulsive escape. Or maybe that's just shopping. We're compulsively shopping so we don't have to think about amusing ourselves, entertaining ourselves. So we don't have to think about the things that we really fear. Another escape is the fight back. This isn't just anger. This is like, hey, I'm not going to take anything from anyone. We can fight. So much I think of the fight response that we have had in this last couple of years is underneath it is this fear. Again, it's way safer to feel like I'm going to fight back than I'm going to be afraid. And so the fight in us or the argumentative spirit or always needing to be right or never letting anyone give me any garbage or crap, I'm going to fight back. That can be an instinct. It can actually be a mask that's covering up fear. How about this one? This, this one does not at all look like a bad thing. Planning for the future. Planning for the future. That's a good thing, right? Well, in a lot of ways, yes, but it may be a mask for worry. Because if I can just think far enough and I can just have the nest egg far enough or I can just tackle this problem, if I can just put my mind to it or put the right amount of people to it, I can talk it out and strategize it out and make sure I have a plan and I have a good backup plan or I have just enough of a nest egg to make sure if this happens and that happens and I can plan my way out of the things that are threatening to make me feel afraid. Planning can be a mask for worry or being overly cautious, right? Afraid to take risks not willing to step out, not willing to risk for other people. Well, I can't be generous or I can't do that because what if I don't have enough left? Or what if I give that and there's nothing left for me? Or what if I serve this person and there's no one left to serve me? We will be cautious. We can be risk averse, not just in venture, but in our attitude and our relations towards other people if fear is operating in our lives. All these things aren't necessarily um, indi indicators that fear is, but they, they might be. They can all be, in a sense, masks, things that mask fear in our lives. And here's the thing. The reason the scriptures tell us not to be afraid, fear not, don't be afraid, is not because fear is a sin or you're a bad person if you're afraid. It's just that when we live in fear, the results can be really damaging. And maybe there's lots of ones, but a few just came to mind. My man. When we... Uh, are driven by fear, we can make bad decisions. Sometimes the decisions we've made or indecisions, things we should have said, but we didn't say, things we said, but we wish we hadn't, things we did that we shouldn't have done, things we should have done that we didn't do. 
right? Decisions. We can make impulsive purchases out of fear. Oh no, I have to jump on this opportunity. It's going to be gone. And if I don't get it, then I won't be able to get into the housing market. Or I have to take this job because even though it's got more travel involved and even though it's going to be longer hours, but it'll make more money because that way it'll get us ahead. And I won't, you know, we can have fear motivating the decisions we're making about career or what career we're going to go into or we're not going to. Fear can get us into, our fear of loneliness can get us into relationships we shouldn't be in or keep us in relationships we shouldn't stay in because we're afraid of being alone or we're afraid of the stigma of what other people will think. Um, fear can talk us into things or talk us out of things we should stay in. We can be uh, afraid of what other people will actually think of us and so we don't tell people the truth. We aren't honest with what we feel. We don't stand up for ourselves, maybe at work or with our friends because we don't wanna feel rejected. We're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid of being alone. We're afraid of what other people will think of us. Fear can be a powerful negative motivator in making decisions that we shouldn't make or keeping us from making decisions that we should. And that's a damaging result. But fear doesn't just can motivate us to to make bad decisions. Fear, if we live in fear, we can be living with constant restlessness. Like this constant state of where our minds are so noisy and constantly filled with, oh, I should be doing this. Even when we're at rest, even when we're sitting on the couch at the end of the day, or even when we're somewhere else, beautiful, tropical, uh, you know, where, which should be paradise. Inside of us, our hearts are troubled and stormy. Inside of our minds, the chaos, the voices, the noise is so loud because we're constantly, well, when I get back, I got to do this. And what about this? And we haven't solved this. And you know, I'm going to miss out on this. And what about this? And you know, all of the fears we have that we think, again, the worry can continue continue to try to control us, or just simply like, I got to change things, or restlessness of, well, I'm going to look on MLS tomorrow, or I'm going to see if there's a sale at this store, or I'm going to go on Amazon because it's Amazon days, or Prime days, or whatever, to all to deal with the sense of restlessness that is inside of us, because of the things ultimately that you are afraid of all around us. So not just bad decisions, not just restlessness, but actually selfishness. If we are ruled by fear, it will be very difficult to put others first, right? Because if we're constantly ruled by fear, what we are constantly ruled by is the survival instinct. I'd like to be kind. I'd like to be patient. I'd like to help you. I'd like to serve you. I'd like to be generous. But ultimately, I'm afraid of what I might lose or what I won't gain. And so therefore, I have to hang on. I have to ultimately look out for me. When fear rules our lives, it doesn't just lead us into bad decisions. It doesn't just keep us from making good decisions. It doesn't just create a sense of restlessness in our lives. It makes us very selfish. Ultimately, in the end, we live by a survival instinct that puts me ahead of everyone else. Friends, when the scriptures tell us not to be afraid, it's because of the damaging results that can happen in our lives. So really... We need to actually take time to let God begin to show us in our lives where we might be operating out of, motivated by, driven by, paralyzed by fear. One of the writers of the Bible said it this way. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me, which just kind of means like evaluate me and know my anxious thoughts. It is an invitation. Say, God, come. Help me figure out and find the anxiety and the fear in my life, the roots of this, the source of this. So before we move on to what the solution is for this, I just want to give us time to actually do it together, to take time right now. 
and just go through a little bit of a reflection exercise wherever you happen to be or if you're driving along or if you're sitting uh, on your own or if you're watching with other people, just take a few moments to be silent. And I just invite you to close your eyes and I'm going to lead you through a couple of questions. We're going to begin first with this silent prayer. Even as you do it, just begin to slow your breathing down. And just silently pray this prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. You can just say it again slowly. Slow your breathing down. Search me, O God, and know my heart. And now here's a few questions to ask yourself or really to ask God to show you. Here's the first one. What have I been angry, controlling, or feeling paralyzed about? What have I been angry about? What have I been trying to control, take charge of? What have I been paralyzed by worry about? And as that comes to mind, ask your questions. What fear or fears might be underneath this? Don't rush. Take your time. Even as you're doing this, you can ask God just to help you. Search me, God. What fears might be underneath this? Now, if that's a good question for you and you just want to camp out there, you can just stay there, but we'll move on to the next one. When I look back at decisions or indecisions that I now regret, what was I trying to gain, avoid, or control? When I look back at decisions or indecisions that I now regret, what was I trying to gain, avoid, or control. Now listen, the answer to that may be obvious to you, but this question may not be. What fears might be underneath this? Don't worry if nothing specific is coming to mind or maybe you've got a good handle on why, but you can't really sense what the fear is. It's okay. You're just inviting God. He can speak. Maybe it won't come up today. Maybe it'll come up tomorrow. Maybe it'll come up this week. Just take your time. Then this question. What relationships, situations, or decisions am I constantly thinking about or obsessing about?
you live in a family, in a household with other people or close friends, maybe another way to think about it is what are, what are we constantly talking about? Or what are we constantly arguing about or stressing about together? And then this question, of course, what fears might be underneath that? And at this point, we're just trying to simply name them to ourselves. Oh, I'm afraid of fill in the blank. Okay, so, I mean, I know when I was doing that exercise as I was writing this week, there's some things that came up. So what do we do? Okay, I know I might have some fears or I, maybe there's a, a path I need to follow here. What's the way forward? I mean, that's the beginning point to let God actually begin to show us where we might be afraid. But how do I deal with those fears? If we're not supposed to live in it, if living in fear over a long period of time is going to do damage to my relationships and my mind and my heart and even my body, what is the solution? Well, as unexpected as it is to find fear in our lives, even more unexpected, I think, is Scripture's solution, is the solution that Jesus offers. But listen to these two passages of Scripture from two separate letters from the same author, describing, actually two different authors, describing what the solution to fear in our life is. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. I wonder if you caught that. The solution to fear in our lives is love. Love. One verse says that we meant, we're meant to be convinced in our hearts that we are children of God, that God loves us. The other one says that the love of God drives out fear. You think like, really? Love? Like love is the answer? Love is just, hey, don't be afraid. It's love. No, you got to look more closely. That first passage tells us that God's spirit has been given to us to convince our spirit that we are loved. In a sense, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives like a preacher and preaches to our hearts to convince us, to remind us, to affirm in us, you are a child of God. Remember, we've talked the last couple of weeks about what it means to be adopted in the family of God. If you missed any of those messages, please catch them. They're so profound, these truths that are in scripture about the fact that we are adopted into the family of God. And the scriptures say that we've been given God's spirit that is, is like a voice from the inside of us, convincing our spirit, preaching to our hearts to remind us that we are dearly loved children of God, that our father, the great parent who looks after us is God. And it is a relationship of love that we have that is meant to free us from, it says, being slaves to our fears. Yes, we have fears in our lives. 
But the love of God is meant to free us from being driven, you know, like this idea. And, and again, many ways this writer was talking to people who were Jewish people who had slavery in their history, who had spent 400 years in their ancestry in Egypt as slaves. And so this idea, this, the language of being a slave to fear was, was not just a throwaway. That was a very powerful word to them saying, don't let fear be a master that drives you, that uses you up, that makes you do its will. No, the Holy Spirit convinces our hearts we are loved. So yes, you may be afraid, and there may be things to be afraid of, but fear does not have to be your master. Fear does not have to rule you and drive you. <clears throat> the love of God actually frees you, and you don't need to be a slave to fear. But then secondly, the other verse says, the perfect love of God drives out fear. And this idea of perfect, the, the, the word in, in that language was a, a holistic word. It meant pure. It, it meant, and we know in this context, talking about the love that comes from Jesus, that Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection has brought the love of God into our lives. It is a love that is pure, that is unconditional, that is relational at its heart, that is sacrificial, and that is eternal. We can never lose it. No one can take it away from us. And that love over time begins to drive out fear from our lives. But how? We say, well, how does love drive out fear? Rob Reber in his book, Soul Care, says this, the number one question in the heart of people for God is, God, do you love me? And the number one question in the heart of God for people is, will you trust me? We want to know, does God love us? And God says, yes, I love you. I have given my son for you. My son has died for you and brought you home. You are my child. But I want to know, will you trust me then? In light of that love, will you? you trust me. Trust is key to breaking free. Trust is key to getting rid of fear driving in our lives. Trust is key as the response to the love of God. In a sense, trust is the surest indication that we know we are loved. Trust is the surest indication. If we can trust God, if we feel like our hearts can trust him, that's the surest sign that we know we are loved. And that's why, honestly, I think trust is a way better word than faith. Faith can mean, oh, just kind of this feeling of belief or whatever. But trust, trust is real. Trust is gritty. Trust is very practical. If I trust a chair will hold my weight, I sit on it. If I don't, I won't. And so we can say, oh yeah, I have faith, I have faith. But do you trust God? In other words, what is your weight? What are you placing or what are you willing to put your, your weight on? Say, oh yeah, I know God loves me, I have faith. But ultimately our trust, what we believe is going to save us, is a good financial nest egg, is a good job that makes enough money. It was enough money so we can afford a house. Our hope, our trust for salvation and satisfaction is not God, it's this thing, whatever we're putting our trust in. We can say, oh yeah, I believe God loves me, but ultimately I'm afraid to speak up. Ultimately, I'm afraid to be honest. Ultimately, I'm afraid to be myself because what I truly trust to save me is the opinions of other people, the approval of other people. We can say, yeah, no, I, I, I believe God. I, I have faith in God. I know God loves me. But what my hope in, what my trust is in is my health, 
is am I going to be, do I look good enough? Do others think I look good? Will I be able to maintain my health? Will I, will I be able to beat this health scare? Yes, I love God, but ultimately, ultimately my trust, my foundation, what I'm putting my weight on is how I physically feel or how I physically look. It doesn't matter what we have faith in. What do you trust? More importantly, who do you trust? God's love is meant to convince our hearts to be able to trust him. But what do we mean by trusting the Lord? Is it, oh, I trust that everything's going to work out. I trust that these fears won't come true. I trust that God will protect me from anything bad that might happen. Is that what we mean by trust? I want you to listen to Rob Reamer in his book as he goes on to describe a major crisis of trust as he uh, and his wife were having major marital issues and and he thought he was going to lose the marriage. Listen to what he says. When I went through my marriage crisis, it tapped into my root fear, the fear of not being loved. The person I loved the most in the world no longer loved me. And that was his wife at the time. My heart trembled and I was afraid. I didn't know that's what it was, but all the symptoms were there. My mind raced. I had countless imaginary conversations and real conversations to try to fix the marriage and control the outcomes. Jen, his wife, often felt smothered because I was obsessed with fixing it. I was driven by fear. I struggled to find peace of mind and heart and anxiety filled my soul. It would often take me two hours of worship after a conversation with Jen before I could find peace. It was in this season in my life, in the midst of my greatest angst, that I discovered that Jesus' love really is enough. I knew it in theory. I believed it cognitively before this crisis, but it was only in this deep soul-shattering pain that I came to know the love of God down in the basement of my soul. Someplace in the midst of this battle and through the revelation of the Spirit, I came to realize that I wanted Jen to love me and life was better when Jen loved me. But even if Jen never loved me again, even if she left me, I was going to be okay because Jesus loved me and this was enough for me. That realization, he says, was transforming. What does it mean for our lives, for our minds? to be convinced deep down in the basement of our soul that God really loves us and that his love is enough that even if our worst fears come true, to the depths of our soul, we trust in and believe in the love of God for us and that is enough. That's beautiful. But how does that happen in our lives? How does that really become true at the depths of our soul that allows us to have freedom and not be slaves to fear? Well, I think we have to actually invite God's spirit into the basement of our soul to convince us that this is true. That's what those scriptures we read said, that the spirit comes and speaks to our spirit. So we need to invite the spirit into our lives. In other words, to make space to displace fear. 
to make space in our lives for fear to be displaced. Right? If fear is what is operating in the basement of our soul, we need to invite the spirit in to drive fear out. We need to invite the spirit into that space to displace fear. And here's a couple of ways that I have seen in my own life and in the lives of others that actually allow for that to happen. One is we create space by ourselves in silence. Regular times of prayer with God, I would encourage you on a daily basis to begin your day in silence. And silence as a key a practice of beginning to realize just how noisy things are up there. Beginning to realize just how stormy and tumultuous it is in here. Silence usually begins not with hearing God, but hearing the noise in our own heads. Realizing what it is we're actually afraid of, what we're obsessed of, what we're trying to control, what we're worried of, what we're hoping to get or gain or not lose. And into that space of silence, God's spirit begins to come. And so we need times alone of silence to create space for the spirit to displace fear. But not just alone in silence, but with one or two in prayer. We've uh, featured during this series our prayer ministry um, that we have where you can invite people in our church who are trained and who, who love you and set aside time to actually pray with you. And so that may be a formal way to do that. But there are people hopefully in your home group or people in your life or one of us as pastors say, can you pray with me? Can you ask me those questions? Hey, what are you afraid of? Is there a fear underneath that for you? We need people in our lives who are going to do that, who can pray for us, who will ask us the honest questions <laughs> to make space for the spirit to displace fear. Not just alone in silence, but with one or two in prayer. And lastly, with the community in worship. Do you notice how Rob mentioned that worshiping for hours at a time was what was helping him deal with this creeping fear of being alone, of not being loved. We need times together where we gather, where we sing about the love of God, where we pour out our hearts together. We realize, yeah, we're all in the same boat. We all have fears in our lives, but we're not slaves to, to fear. Like, let's throw that off. Let's become free together. We need time to do that as well. And so I just encourage you, Maybe you have one of those things that's a regular part of your life, but you're missing the other two, or you need all three back in your life. Um, and I can tell you this, for some of you, I know you've gotten used to watching church online at home and it's quite comfortable, but you are missing out on the worship life of the community that it actually is key for making space in your heart for the spirit to displace fear. So you got to get back. You got to bring these things back. And others of us have completely abandoned our personal time. Our personal habits have been totally thrown out of rhythm in this season. We need to get back time alone with God and space for the spirit to displace fear. Now, I live in Woodbridge, Jen, and I've lived there for 18 years. And it's a very multicultural uh, kind of borough now, but it still has that kind of good Italian um, heritage in Woodbridge. And so I have a lot of Italian friends and neighbors. And every good Italian home has in the basement a cantina. And the cantina is when you have loved ones come over, when you have friends come over, out of the cantina comes the good wine and the cured meats and the cheese and the dried fruits and the nuts and whatever that you have in the basement to share with those that you love, to share with those you invited. And thankfully, I've been the recipient of that in an Italian home with a good cantina. 
when fear lives in the basement of our souls, all we have to offer the people who are close to us, the people who come into our lives, is anger or worry or control or obsessive compulsive behavior or selfishness. That, that's all that's in the basement of our soul. But when we invite the spirit in, in creates space in the basement to displace fear. <laughs> and the spirit brings with it the good wine and the cured meats and the nuts and the scriptures actually the fruits of the spirit. Do you know what you have to give to the people in your lives? When the spirit comes into the basement of your soul, out of the richness of the cantina that the spirit brings. You know what you have? Just close your eyes and listen to these words before we go to worship together. This is what you have to give the people in your lives. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Goodness. Kindness. Faithfulness. Gentleness and self-control.